In our last session, we discussed the virtue of love. And this week, we're turning our attention to another fruit of the Spirit, another quality of Christ-likeness, and that is the quality of joy. Uh, joy is a central theme in Christian faith. In fact, if you notice the two great days of the Christian calendar, Christmas and Easter, they're both festivals, both days of feasting and celebration filled with joy and parties and festivities. And, you know, it's remarkable to reflect on that today because today we live in a culture that is really no longer distinctly or recognizably Christian in any sense. And yet people still celebrate Christmas and Easter. And that fact should alert us to something very important about our faith. When a lot of what Christians teach has been forgotten, what our culture remembers, even if only by accident, is that Christians are people who like to party. That Christianity is, at its heart, fundamentally a religion of joy. As Pope Francis put it in a homily several years ago, joy is the sign of a Christian. A Christian without joy is either not a Christian or he is sick. There's no other type. A healthy Christian is a joyful Christian. And joy isn't just a Christian virtue. It's also something that's actually commanded in Scripture. Take the Psalms, for instance. On numerous occasions, the psalmist will call people to rejoice or sing for joy. But these calls, they're not just invitations. They're actually phrased as commands. Like Psalm 32, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Or uh, take Psalm 100. Anglicans are very familiar with this psalm because we say it on a regular basis as a part of morning prayer. How does it read? Oh, be joyful in the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness and come before his presence with a song. And it's not just the psalms. The same thing is in the New Testament. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. And the epistle of James begins in a similar way, exhorting us to count it all joy, as James puts it, even when we face trials of many kinds. Scripture is littered, really, with calls for us as a people to sing and to rejoice, to shout and to be glad. And you know, that might seem kind of strange because as much as Christianity is a distinctively joyous religion, it's also a religion that's well acquainted with suffering and sorrow. And yet, somehow these two find a way to coexist. Somehow we find a way both to celebrate with great festivals and also to dedicate ourselves to times of fasting and lament. In a single worship service, we will both sing for joy and remember in prayer a world that is filled with injustice and sickness and pain and grief. And right there, in the midst of it all, stands Jesus, the one who told his followers that they would suffer just as he suffered, that they would be persecuted just as he was persecuted, and yet, as he says in John chapter 15, the one who also says that his very reason for coming to us is that his joy 
may be in us and that our joy may be full. At the heart of the Christian faith then lies a, a kind of strange paradox of both suffering and joy, of joyful suffering and sorrowful joy. That's what distinguishes Christianity. Indeed, as the 17th century English Puritan Thomas Manton says, a Christian is a bird that can sing in winter as well as in spring. He can live in the fire like Moses' bush, burn and not be consumed, even leap in the fire. Certainly a Christian is not understood by the world. His whole life is a riddle, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. This is Paul's riddle, and it may be every Christian's motto. And Thomas Manton is right. The joy of Christian life is undoubtedly a riddle. How is it possible to be, as Paul says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing? Or to quote the words of Psalm 137, how is it possible to sing the Lord's song in a foreign and strange land? That's the question we'll be taking up in this session. What exactly is joy and how can we experience it even amidst sorrow? And before answering, it's helpful to point out that this isn't a uniquely Christian question. Every religion and every culture wrestles with the question of how a person can find happiness in a very difficult and imperfect world. In the ancient Roman world to which Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, there were various schools of thought on this. In fact, in his book, The City of God, Augustine says that every school of ancient philosophy can be categorized by paying attention to how they answer the question of the quest for happiness. How can a person find happiness in the good life in a world beset with tragedy? And, you know, when you divide them up that way, Augustine says, there are at least 288 possible answers to the question. 288 Augustine says, philosophical schools of thought on how to find true happiness. And things aren't that different today. Several years ago, I saw a film called Hector and the Search for Happiness. And it was an adaptation of a, of a best-selling novel. And it told the story of this psychiatrist named Hector who took a trip around the world trying to discover what it was that made people happy and unhappy. And the first, on a plane to China, he meets this businessman named Edward, who's not at all terribly happy himself, but he tries to, to show Hector all the pleasures that money can buy. And Hector wasn't very content with that, so then he goes on to this monastery in Tibet where he meets some monks who live in a really austere conditions up on the top of a mountain. But they seem to have found happiness by simply being content with very little. And then after that, Hector visits Africa, where he discovers people who find joy in one another, in one another's company and relationships, even amidst great hardship. And then finally, he goes back to LA and he visits an old girlfriend who is now happily married. And there in LA, he somehow comes to this epiphany where he realizes that happiness doesn't consist in the absence of sadness or fear, but somehow alongside them. And then he realizes that the one thing that gives him the greatest happiness is also the one thing that makes him the saddest and most afraid when he thinks of losing it. And that's his girlfriend, Clara. 
And so he goes back to Clara and he finds his happiness and all's well in the world. Uh, needless to say, it's, this is a kind of shallow and cliche film, but I think it does illustrate some common ideas about joy. Some people search for joy and pleasure. Some people try to attain it by simply renouncing pleasure. And some discover joy, regardless of circumstances, through relationships with other people. And all of these are ways of attempting to find joy in a world of sorrows. But none of them are what Paul has in mind when he speaks of the joy that is the fruit of the Spirit, or when he tells the Philippians to rejoice always. And what Paul has in mind can't be found by any pleasure within the world, nor is it the same as that resigned contentment of those Tibetan monks. This joy that Paul is speaking of, it doesn't arise from denying the darkness of the world or just trying to make do by finding some small source of light amidst the darkness. No, the kind of joy that Paul is speaking of comes in response to the fact that something has happened, something has changed, and the darkness has actually been done away with. And really, this is a consistent theme all throughout the Bible. And take, for instance, Psalm 126. Now, this is a psalm that speaks memorably about joy, but the joy that it describes is a joy that arises in response to something. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Here, the psalmist describes a time when God has acted decisively and victoriously and miraculously. All of a sudden, God has reversed the sorrows of the people of Jerusalem. And then, says the psalmist, then their mouths are filled with laughter. And you see, see the same pattern in the book of Isaiah. In this case, it's not looking back on what God has done, but it's anticipating what God will do in the future. Isaiah 35 puts it this way. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now, those are all examples of national redemption and national celebration. But you know, the Bible also contains individual stories of joy, like when Sarah miraculously conceives in her old age with the child that she has long since given up on. And what does she say in response in Genesis? She says that God has filled her mouth with laughter. And those aren't the words of someone who has simply found happiness by resigning herself to accept the world as it is. Those are the words of someone who has been overcome by a sudden reversal of fortunes. Her life had been dark and sorrowful, and now, in an instant, everything has changed. Uh, the great story writer, the author of Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, he said that the best way to understand this kind of joy is actually through the category of fairy tales. You know, it's interesting, fairy tales are often thought of as stories for children, but 
they're usually really filled with pretty dark themes. Wicked stepmothers, cruel ogres, murderous witches, hungry beasts, you know, good, wholesome kid stuff. But there comes a moment in every great fairy tale, Tolkien said, when there is a turn, something happens, a prince arrives, or an evil ring is thrown into a mountain of fire. Something happens and the story suddenly changes and all of the darkness and the sorrow and the grief that were a part of the story up until that moment, they're all overcome. And when you're reading that story, he says, you feel this kind of elation all of a sudden. And Tolkien, he called that moment in the story, that turn, he called it the eucatastrophe. And that is what makes fairy tales so great. Because the fairy story, he said, the fairy story does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. A Christian joy, the joy that is the fruit of the Spirit, it's very similar to the joy of fairy tales that Tolkien describes. Because Christian joy is also a response to a sudden turn, to a light breaking in and shining on a people who have dwelt in deep darkness, as we read in Isaiah chapter 9, or a sea dividing before a people who were afraid and fleeing from their enemies and then swallowing up their enemies behind them, as we read in Exodus chapter 14, or to the sudden appearance of a man who had been dead and is now alive. That's what happens to the disciples when they meet Jesus for the first time after his resurrection. How do they respond when he suddenly appears in their presence? Then we read in the Gospel of John, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, the word that John uses there when he says that they were glad, it's the Greek verb kairo, and it's actually where we get the word that Paul uses when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, kara, joy. The joy that the disciples felt on seeing Jesus again for the first time, that's the joy that Paul is talking about. And, you know, that's why when Pope Francis wrote his first encyclical about Christian joy, it's why he called it the joy of the gospel. Because Christian joy, Christian joy is the gladness that comes in response to the fact that something has happened that God has done something dramatic, and that something is gospel. It is very good news. But how do we experience that joy today? If Christian joy is a response to a sudden turn, to the reversal of wrongs, to the defeat of darkness and pain and grief, how are we supposed to be joyful in a world that's still marked by suffering. In a way, we've kind of ended up back where we started, still puzzling over the riddle that Thomas Manton said is the motto of every Christian, that we may be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Now, hopefully now we're in a better place to understand that riddle. 
the joy of the Christian life. The rejoicing is the gladness that we feel in recognizing that the story in which we live is not a tragedy, but a fairy tale. And we rejoice because, not because we're denying sorrow and failure, as Tolkien put it, but because we know that they have been finally and universally defeated. On that much, the Bible is very clear. When Jesus rose from the grave, death lost its sting, Paul says. And yet, we occupy a rather strange time in this fairy tale. We know that darkness and pain and death, we know that they've been overcome, but we are still waiting for their final and ultimate defeat. And that's why, that's why joy for us is not simply a response to something that has happened, but it's also like it was in Isaiah. Joy is a hopeful anticipation of something that will happen, something that is coming. And you know, it's also one of the reasons that the church calendar is so helpful to our formation as Christians. Because the church calendar actually trains us to be both sorrowful and also to rejoice. You just think about those two great festivals I mentioned at the beginning of this session, Christmas and Easter. Now, these are celebrations, they are festivals of joy, but it's not a glib or shallow or sentimental joy that they celebrate. Not a joy that simply ignores or accepts suffering and sorrow or just learns how to make do in the meantime. Both of these celebrations, Christmas and Easter, they're both preceded by seasons of fasting and prayer and repentance. And Christmas is the celebration of the fact that the light has entered the darkness. But before Christmas, we have Advent. And Advent, to quote the great preacher Fleming Rutledge, Advent begins in the dark and moves toward the light. Advent trains and prepares us to rejoice by reminding us that the darkness is there and the light is coming. And then before Easter, we have the season of Lent. And Lent, just like Advent, trains our attention on the sin and the suffering that still exists in our lives and cause us to sorrow. But Lent is not the final word. Lent is only helping us to prepare for the joy that is coming, the joy of the resurrection. And these seasons, these holidays, actually cultivate joy in us because they train our attention on the good news that brings joy for Christians. The news that even though darkness and death may still be around, even though we may experience sorrow and grief, that the light has broken in, that death has met its match, and that all things will soon be made right. So be glad, rejoice, as Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always.